Tom Bertram had of late spent so little of his time at home that he could be only nominally missed, and Lady Bertram was soon astonished to find how very well they did. I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet, and this is Reading Jane Austen. This week we're looking at chapters 4 to 7 of Mansfield Park. Do you have a hundred word summary? Yes. About 22 months pass and Sir Thomas is still in Antigua. Fanny's pony dies and Edmund replaces one of his own horses with one for her. Tom arrives home and Mariah becomes engaged to the wealthy Mr Rushworth. In July, Mrs Grant's half-siblings, Henry and Mary, come to visit. Henry flirts with Julia and Mariah. Mary feels that Tom would be a suitable husband, but when he goes away to the races, she enjoys Edmund's company. Edmund teaches Mary to ride on the horse he got for Fanny, but realises that Fanny's health is affected when she can't go riding. I think that sort of covers most of the plot points, but it sounds terribly flat. (laughs) No, it sounds so good compared with the (laughs) clunky stuff I've got. With Sir Thomas away, Mrs Norris takes responsibility for Mariah and Julia's coming out. Fanny's pony dies. Edmund buys a horse which she can ride. Tom Bertram comes home. Mariah becomes engaged to the rich but stupid Mr Rushworth. The Crawfords come to stay with the Grants. The Miss Bertrams are both attracted by Henry, but he favours Mariah. Mary is attracted by Tom as the heir, but he soon departs. Mr Rushworth wants to improve Southerton. Edmund is fascinated by Mary and visits her daily to hear her harp. Fanny tries to control her jealousy. Edmund offers her Fanny's horse to learn to ride. Fanny's health suffers and Edmund apologises. So one of the things that really struck me in these chapters, in Pride and Prejudice, in the scene at Netherfield, we got these character-revealing dialogue scenes where people often reflected on themselves. Yeah, you know, Bingley says, if I decided to leave and then someone told me not to, then I wouldn't, that sort of thing. Yes. Well, we have so many of those in these few chapters of Mansfield Park. Yeah. So in Chapter 4, we've got the Grants and Mary and Henry talking. And yes. then again in Chapter 5, they again have a discussion where they talk about Henry and flirting and women and that sort of thing. And Mary's views of marriage, which yes. keep coming up and coming yeah. up. But then particularly the dinner at Mansfield, when they're talking about improvement, and Mary says that I would like to have someone do it and just come and see it when it's finished, whereas Edmund says I would prefer to do it myself, even if it's inferior. And Fanny says how much she'd like to see the work being done. This is all sort of reflecting on how they react with the world. And it's such a natural dialogue, but at the same time, it tells you so much about the characters. You know, Mary talks about getting the harp in, and then you've got the discussion again between Edmund, Mary and Fanny about writing letters, and Mary talks about how Henry has never yet gone to a second page when writing her a letter, and Fanny is so defensive of William. And we see Edmund, who comes across quite nicely because he sort of encourages Fanny to talk for herself about William. So, as I said, all these character-revealing dialogue scenes where people aren't just revealing themselves in how they say things, but they're also talking about themselves and their personalities, which I thought was interesting. 
Well, my take on these scenes is quite a different one that I got quite passionate about, and that was looking at the way Jane Austen describes Fanny to us Mm -hmm. and how she tries to get us on side with Fanny, but actually is often doing the sort of thing that puts people off Fanny. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's that famous Lionel Trilling article on Mansfield Park in which he says, nobody, I believe, has ever found it possible to like the heroine of Mansfield Park. And from the beginning, I liked Fanny Price much more than I do now, I think, Mm -hmm. because I was completely swept up in the Cinderella plot. But looking at what it's here is we do see Fanny starting to come across as sort of whiny and also as being pushed by Jane Austen. We're supposed to like her. In the chapter before where she has that piece about how Fanny cried because Sir Thomas had gone yep. and she cried because... Because she, she felt she, bad that she didn't feel bad. And she keeps pushing Fanny with this tender conscience, which I don't believe. Mary Crawford's the one who feels sorry for people mm. and responds. But what Fanny does come through is these various almost unsympathetic points She's so very conscious about other people will think of her. Mm-hmm. You get that coming through. And she's supposed to be this girl who thinks she counts for nothing. Mm-hmm. But she's always fussing about what will people think of her. When Edmund doesn't go on to criticise Mary Crawford, and she's noticed her with all these other yep. vulgar behaviours, she scrupled to point out her own remarks to him, lest it should appear like ill nature. What's he going to think of me? I mustn't say this because mm. he'll think this. Later, when she's waiting for Mary Crawford to bring the horse back, she began then to be afraid of appearing rude and impatient and walked to meet them with great anxiety to avoid the suspicion. I mean, it, it's this, you know... What will they think? What will they think? See, I, I guess I just take that as, like I said last time, when she moved to Mansfield, there was this tremendous hit to her self-esteem. To me, it makes sense that she's so concerned with how she looks because she's so concerned that it will push her even lower. She feels she's there on sufferance by everyone else and so she doesn't want to jeopardise that. And I think, look, she's very judgmental. But at the same time, she tries not to... She'll only voice her judgment if somebody else has started. Yes. And then she'll corroborate it. I don't think at any time other people's judgment actually influence her at all. Internally, she is very convinced that she's right, but she's at the same time so underconfident. It's this weird mix of certainty and lack of confidence, which I I, I actually do find quite believable. Actually, for a long time, that's been my feeling about Fanny, that she wants to do the right thing, she finds it hard, she has all these views, she's got to sort of integrate them somehow into appropriate method of behaviour. Now, what the point I'm making is if you're just coming to it for the first time Mm. reading this, you've got this Fanny, oh, I mustn't let them think this... The reasons why people have disliked Fanny, you can tend to pick them out here. And and that's what I'm noticing. Mm. And then another thing that could put you off 
is Jane Austen says she's feeling jealous and she feels resentment. And what you look at it and you think, well, there she is, she's supposed to be so unimportant. But she thinks Edmund belongs to her. Yes. And we don't say she's unjustified. Mm. But yeah. reading this, you get this picture of she thought Edmund's hers and she doesn't like him liking anyone else. Yeah. And you can sort of disapprove of her f- mm. for that possessiveness. Yeah. Jane Austen is absolutely open about her jealousy coming up there. Yeah. You know, and this is passage. Uh, this is after Edmund has given her the wine on the sofa. Yeah. Fanny went to bed with her heart as full as on the first evening of her arrival in the park. The state of her spirits had probably had its share in her indisposition, for she had been feeling neglected and been struggling against discontent and envy for some days past. Mm. And that's not the kind of thing to make people immediately Mm. unless they've got that broad commitment which we ended up with both of us that I'm having not exactly doubts but Mm. sort of an understanding trying to understand why people don't like Fanny Mm. whereas you're so determined all the time to defend Fanny which I mean is justified look I can absolutely see why people don't like her yes I just think there's more to her than that Edward is still coming across reasonably well in these chapters. Oh, yes. Even when he starts to his infatuation with Mary Crawford and he does take the horse back from Fanny. Yes. These things happen and he realises and he... Whenever he's reminded of Fanny, he accepts that role that he's taken on as her protector. Yeah. But what he hasn't accepted is that she has a right to stop him liking any other women. Yeah. There's the conversation Mary Crawford and Edmund and Tom have about, is Fanny Price out? Yes. And just one thing that struck me about that is Mary has these very clear views on behaviour. It's like social behaviour, but she almost treats them as moral imperatives. Yes. These rules about how you behave before you're out and how you behave after you're out. And I think that sort of gives us this first hint of... The principles she lives by are not things Edmund considers as principles. Yeah. He considers them as... Social niceties. Social, social practices, yeah. yes. You wanted to say something about Mariah and Julia's coming out? Well, not really, except did they come out together? Was Sir Thomas there? And then the odd thing of suddenly when Mr Rushworth appears on the scene, and by this time they must have been out for three or four years, and was there nobody else in the neighbourhood that they actually liked? Yes, it is interesting that of all the young men in the neighbourhood, and we know there are others because they mentioned some of them in connection with the play. Yes. Maybe just none of them set up to Mrs Norris's standards for the amount of money she felt Mariah was worth. Yes. At £12,000 a year, he's the richest person in Jane Austen. He's 2000 a year better off than Darcy. Yes. But he's really not got a lot else to recommend him. But again, there he is and he's new and he's new in the neighbourhood. Yeah. And Mrs Norris is so pro him. Yeah. I suppose maybe it was that all the young men in the neighbourhood, she'd known them all her life. So they maybe still seemed like boys to her. They were also perhaps, in a sense, dependent on Sir Thomas. He was grander. So the only two men she meets before getting married that she hasn't potentially known all her life are Mr Rushworth and Henry Crawford. Yes. (laughs) For all that there may be some problems with Henry Crawford, when you stand him next to Mr Rushworth... Yes. You can't really blame Mariah for 
sort of regretting well he was glamorous in the way yeah and of course flirtatious yeah at a level of charm that nobody nearby had known yeah one of the ah. things with Henry Crawford is the two Miss Bertrams being so fond of him, saying he wasn't really plain. Well, but Fanny continues to think <laughs> he's plain because I think she watches him flirting yeah, and doesn't like it and doesn't think it's appropriate. Mm. So what it says when he first arrives is that he was absolutely plain, black and plain. What is meant by black? Dark skin. Just tanned dark skin or a bit oh, sallow? Yeah, okay. Because I also thought, could it maybe just mean he's got a permanent five o'clock shadow, which today would be seen as really sexy? No, I, I don't think Henry Crawford would have a five o'clock but shadow. But if, if he is very dark, then... Well, probably not very dark, but they're possibly used to seeing those pink-cheeked, fair-haired Englishmen, mm. which may be what the others are like. Mm. So by comparison, he doesn't even look healthy. Yeah. Black is an interesting choice of word, whereas Mary Crawford, I think, is described as dark. Well, that just means dark hair. Yeah. She can have the loveliest complexion in the world. Yeah. So, of course, the other thing we get with the introduction of Henry is this bit about him flirting with the women, not in any way intending to be involved himself. It says, Mr Crawford did not mean to be in any danger. The Miss Bertrams were worth pleasing and were ready to be pleased, and he began with no object but of making them like him, which is a little bit not nice. Well, what he thinks he's doing is attracting these girls, making them show off their best side yeah. and then bowing out. But the narrator is somewhat censorious of it. Oh, and I know yeah. the narrator yeah. isn't happy um, It says, he did not want them to die of love, but with sense and temper which ought to have made him judge and feel better, he allowed himself great latitude on such points. So the narrator is can kind of see where he's coming from, but at the same time thinks he should know better. Yes, or that he simply does not recognise the potential seriousness yes. of what could happen. Well, I suppose you could say because he's never been in love himself, he doesn't know how strong a feeling it can be. And the same with Mary. Yeah. She sees him as, in a sense, these girls are having a nice time, they're in love with him, but they'll get over it. Yeah. And then there's also his line about, an engaged woman is always more agreeable than a disengaged. She is satisfied with herself. Her cares are over and she feels that she may exert all her powers of pleasing without suspicion. All is safe with the lady engaged. No harm can be done. Which to a certain extent, to be honest, there's some justification for saying that. It's just because she's chosen Mr Rushworth purely for the money. And then, the prestige. And the prestige. And then there's Henry Crawford being so much more attractive and fun to be with. And having something to offer that would be acceptable. He's got... He, he's got a property, he's got a comfortable income, he can certainly look after a wife. And he's got a really good social presence. Yes. You would never no be, problem, he's a gentleman. Yeah. But he's, You would never be embarrassed for him in company, whereas no. you would frequently be embarrassed for Mr Rushworth in company. I suppose the other thing, I don't know if we want to comment on it or not, but that lovely scene between Mrs Norris and Dr Grant about the Moorpark apricot. Oh, yes. Isn't that Isn't funny? gorgeous? Yeah. Yes. I particularly love in that where she says, it was a gift, but I saw the, saw the price, yes. Yes. <laughs> I think that's everything I had to say on these chapters. So what was your favourite sentence? Well, my favourite sentence, I chose this one because I thought it deals rather well with Jane Austen being able to present something from Mrs Norris's point of view and immediately, well, I suppose this is using irony, more or less discounted. Mm -hmm. It's enormous. Okay. 
The earliest intelligence of the traveller's safe arrival in Antigua after a favourable voyage was received, though not before Mrs Norris had been indulging in very dreadful fears and trying to make Edmund participate whenever she could get him alone and as she depended on being the first person made acquainted with any fatal catastrophe, she had already arranged the manner of breaking it to all the others, when Sir Thomas's assurance of their both being alive and well made it necessary to lay by her agitation and affectionate preparatory speeches for a while. <laughs> so you were saying you liked that one because... Well, because it's got this ability, it shows you Mrs Norris's point of view and it sort of makes fun of them and criticises them. All at the same time. All at the same time, all within that one sentence. Mm. I had a lot of possibilities. Nothing really leapt out to me as being my absolute standout favourite sentence. Up until about now, I was going to use the one about Edmund thinking about Mr Rushworth being... A very stupid fellow but I think instead I'm going to use the one about Lady Bertram when they've been out in the flower gardens in the heat oh, right. and Edmund is being critical of how tiring it's been for Fanny yeah. and Lady Bertram says yes it was very hot sitting and calling to Pug and trying to keep him from the flower beds was almost too much for me <laughs> it just it sums up both Lady Bertram's indolence her she can be absent-mindedly, oh, yes, it's very bad for Fanny, but that's never going to actually make her do anything to make things less bad for Fanny. Except at that point, she had given her her smelling salts, was yes. it? yeah. True. So she had done something when Fanny was feeling bad. Yeah. And I doubt if Fanny actually asked for them. True. So she probably offered them to her. Yes, when she came back from Mrs Norris's house the second time. It's so hard to believe that wasn't something she put in semi-deliberately. <laughs> I think they say that in talking of Jane Austen. Well, so you actually see every now and then Lady Bertram deliberately saying something to dump Mrs Norris in it? Yes, yes. Either with Edmund or with Sir Thomas? Yes. Okay. I struggle with that because it's so incompatible with... Well, this line about sitting and calling to Pug, it's so vacuous... Yeah. And so I I can't reconcile that with occasionally having such a subtle dig at Mrs Norris. It is hard to believe, but it seems to be there. Yeah. Well, it may be Jane Austen's subtle dig yeah. and she, she wants to give it to Lady Bertram. Yeah. And we don't accept that as part of Lady Bertram's character <laughs> that she's given us. Yeah. Yes. For this episode, the character we're talking about is Mary Crawford, and I just want to give a reminder that there will be spoilers in this. We've said Fanny is Jane Austen's most divisive heroine. I think there's probably almost as much disagreement about Mary Crawford. For a lot of people, it's either or. Either you're team Fanny and you hate Mary, or you're team Mary and you hate Fanny. Oh, do you think so? Uh, I think so. Not, look, not with everyone, obviously. Yes, it possibly is, though I think it's more people completely feeling that Mary's just an extension of Elizabeth Bennet. Yeah. And why is Jane Austen so anti yes. her yeah. when she's this lovely, open person, entertaining and kind? Mm. And, yeah. and yet it's right from the start Jane Austen is trying to indicate we've got to have some reservations right from the start. 
she brings in this question of Mary's attitude to marriage, yeah. which is really the turning yeah. point of the well, whole thing. I think it's not just her attitude to marriage. I think with Mary Crawford, to a certain extent, you do have to buy into Jane Austen's views on morality. Essentially, I think what she's saying to me is that Mary Crawford is a really nice, lovely person, but there's this vacant spot that should be filled with principle, and she doesn't have those principles, and more importantly, she doesn't know she doesn't have those principles. Because she doesn't think those principles are real principles. Her morality is a morality that's based on response to people. Yes. Trying to make people happy. Yes. So you get the lovely scene with her supporting Fanny against Mrs Norris. Yes, when when Mrs Norris is being mean about the play, Mary Crawford goes and walks away from Mrs Norris and says, this place is too warm for me, and goes and sits next to Fanny and is nice to Fanny, and that's a lovely thing to do. But also, Mary never minds what she says. Where she says she saw Mr Rushworth uh, looking at Mariah and Henry Crawford, rehearsing and she says there's something so maternal in mm. his attitude yeah. she says wasn't that good of me yeah. which she's sort of implying I was telling lies I knew they were doing the wrong thing yeah. I knew Mr Rushworth was jealous mm. and I was trying to soften it Yeah, she's very good at judging people to say the thing that will make them happy but she completely misunderstands Fanny at every level yes Everything she says to Fanny that she thinks Fanny will like, in fact, makes Fanny uncomfortable. In that letter to Fanny, when she makes that joke about there being two fewer poor young men in the world, how can she possibly imagine Fanny would find that funny? And then on top of that, she says, Fanny, I see you smile and look cunning. Well, when did Fanny ever smile and look cunning? It's like she's made up this Fanny in her head. In terms of the Henry Crawford and Mariah thing, even though morality is sort of different today and so we wouldn't see it as that big a deal, it's kind of, I think, fairly easy to see why it was a big deal in Jane Austen's day, why it was a big deal to Edmund and Fanny. But what I think is more interesting is at the start, you know, that, that very first warning we have against her when Edmund and Fanny are quite censorious about how she spoke of her uncle and when you look at what she said they're talking about improvements and she says it was no part of my education and the only dose I ever had being administered by not the first favorite in the world has made me consider improvements in hand as the greatest of nuisances I think and I could be wrong here but I think the key bit is when she describes her uncle as not the first favourite in the world, which seems so innocuous to us. But then I started to think, well, Jane Austen does seem to be very, very, very strong on respect for members and particularly for older generation members of your family. Just for, in effect, honouring your father and mother. Yes, because in Persuasion, there's that bit about how Anne did long to say something about her friend, but her sense of personal respect for her father... Yes. stopped her doing it and then we also see Elizabeth Bennet no matter what she thinks about her mother she never criticizes her mother. Mr Darcy criticizes her family to her yes. but she will not say anything yeah so I think that is the bit that Edmund and Fanny are so down on and it's so hard for us today yes. to really engage with that yes 
The rears and vices pun, I've never really fully understood what meaning we are meant to take from that. There are plenty of people who say, oh, when she says rears, she's talking about sodomy. But when I read that, I thought of those cartoons of the period by Gilray and so on, of people with these huge bulbous bottoms. Mm. That was what rears in that context said to me. When I first read it, I actually didn't understand it at all because I didn't know anything about the Navy. So I didn't know she was talking about rear admirals and vice admirals. But the footnote to the Cambridge edition says, The pun, singular, is on vices, though both words are italicised. Mary has already spoken of the admiral's jealousies by implication of their greed and now moves on to hint at what the narrative has earlier described as her adulterous uncle's vicious conduct. Later readers, less innocent than Edmund and Fanny, put the two words together and take the reference to be to sodomy in the Navy, although the context is heterosexual. Jane Austen might have heard of the practice through her naval brothers, but it is inconceivable, given the proprieties of the period, that consciously she would introduce such a subject into her text. Mary's verbally teasing style is intended to seduce the imagination of her listeners, but Fanny and Edmund appear less shocked by the pun itself than by Mary's public disparagement of her uncle in front of comparative strangers. Well, I don't believe Mary invented that joke. I think mm. that's probably a joke, probably running, running around actually in naval circles. Yeah. My feeling is that from the start, the principal thing that Jane Austen is fussed about is Mary's attitude to marriage. Mm. And we know from Elizabeth Bennet that her view, and probably Jane Austen's, was that marriage ought to be for love. And right from the start, Mary is not taking it, marriage is for love. You know, you've got that first quote, matrimony was her object, provided she could marry well. And then there's lots of talk about marriage and people being taken in by marriage. And then we've got those two accounts of how her two friends made bad marriages. One of them went and spent three days asking all around, should I marry him, shouldn't I marry him? But the other one, she jilted a very nice young man in the blues for the sake of that horrid Lord Stornoway. (laughs) I guess what I feel with that, though, is that other people are much more, I think, highly criticised by Jane Austen for such a worldly view. I just get this sense that you kind of feel sorry for Mary that she's missing out on something, that she just doesn't get it. Now, I was saying earlier that Fanny is very judgmental. Most of the time, she actually judges right. And I think we see that in her initial impressions of Mary before she started getting jealous. The first time Fanny and Edmund are criticising how Mary spoke about her uncle, we have this bit. Do not you think, said Fanny, after a little consideration, that this impropriety is a reflection itself upon Mrs Crawford, as her niece has been entirely brought up by her? She cannot have given her right notions of what was due to the Admiral. I think Fanny is, she's not condoning the behaviour, but she's putting the blame on Mary's education. And then I think even more more significantly, a fair bit later, the narrator is channeling Fanny's thoughts in what I, I believe the technical term is free indirect dialogue, where the narrator is speaking in the voice of one of the characters. And it says that Mary had a mind led astray and bewildered and without any suspicion of being so, darkened yet fancying itself light. And I think that possibly really sums up how we're meant to see Mary Crawford. So Fanny and I think Jane Austen does blame Mary's upbringing rather than Mary herself and does say that she's she's just got this lack. But of course then, right at the very end of the book, 
Edmund says he blames her friends they've been leading her astray. And Fanny thinks... She's been leading them astray. They've been leading one another astray. And I think at this point it's Edmund that has the right of it and that Fanny is being unfair because she's so jealous of Mary. completely unfair. Yeah. John Mullen, in a talk he gave at the Hay Festival in, I think, 2014, it's on YouTube, he really dislikes Mary Crawford in that. He describes her as the spider. He uses the word evil, which which I just think is is wrong. But he also interestingly makes the point that Mary Crawford is described as being arch and the only other character in all of Jane Austen described as being arch is Elizabeth Bennet. Yes, that's what I She is Elizabeth Bennet, but she's just Elizabeth Bennet with this lack, with this moral and ethical absence. When Edmund is talking about what Mariah and Henry have done, he talks about it as a crime and a sin. Yeah. And she sees it at, I'd say, about the level that Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet see what Lydia did. It's something wrong, but let's make it all mm. right. It's, I think, hard for us today to recognise that for Jane Austen, what Lydia did is a sin, what Mariah did is a sin, but Mariah's is a worse sin. And probably a crime as well. Yeah. So I guess that's why she finds it acceptable for Sir Thomas to ban Mariah from the house forever, whereas she finds it not acceptable for Mr Bennet to ban Lydia from the house forever. Yes, Yeah. because after all, Mariah had made vows in church to be faithful to Mr Rushworth and... So that's why Edmund is saying it's a sin and a crime. Mm. And Mary just thinks it's a social faux pas and we can sort it out. I mean, she thinks they shouldn't have done it. She's just angry about their folly, about the way they went about it, about them putting themselves in the power of the maid, about... I don't think she would be that concerned about a discreet affair. She hasn't been brought up on prayer book principles, the catechism, and she also has this mercenary view of marriage. Today, it is quite easy to say Mary Crawford is just like Elizabeth. Why is she so down on Mary Crawford? Because most of us today don't share Jane Austen's views on that. Jane Austen was brought up on these prayer book principles, as far as Jane Austen was concerned, for a married woman to have an affair and even more to leave her husband Mm. was a crime and a sin. That's what the prayer book told her. She was a religious woman. I think this is where we should consider Kingsley Amos's article, What Became of Jane Austen. What he's really angry about is Jane Austen supports Edmund in thinking they should cast Mariah out. Yeah. And he thinks that Mary is the one taking the open, fine, liberal, truly moral one. Yeah. He says, Although Mansfield Park never holds up the admirable as vicious, it continually and essentially holds up the vicious as admirable. Mm. And I don't think it does it really all that often, but I think it definitely, you can say it's true there. I mean, he's agreeing with Mary Crawford. I guess my feeling is whether or not you share Jane Austen's views on that matter, you have to understand Jane Austen's views to get what the difference is between Elizabeth Bennet and Mary Crawford. Would we describe Mary Crawford as a villain? When John Mullen describes her as evil and spider, I just think that's going way too far because I don't think she's evil. I don't think she's scheming or manipulative. I think she's a very nice person. And she wants things to be nice for people. Yeah, That's actually something that I'd written down 
to say about her. We've got this rather wistful little subplot of a lively young girl brought up to believe in marriage as a mercenary bargain. She falls in love with a young clergyman, is almost ready to abandon her aunt's principles when her brother's sexual misconduct separates them forever. Mm. In my notes, I put it even a bit more strongly. I said it's, it's a tragedy. She is genuinely nice, could be Elizabeth Bennet, but doesn't even see the existence of the gap between her and Edmund. Yes. She throws away her chance. She throws away her chance of happiness. Yeah. And having the kind of marriage she'd come to believe could exist. In the wrap-up in the last chapter when it says what happens to everyone, it says, For Mary, though perfectly resolved against ever attaching herself to a younger brother again, (laughs) was long in finding among the dashing representatives or idle heir apparents who were at the command of her beauty and her £20,000, anyone who could satisfy the better taste she had acquired at Mansfield, and whose character and manners could authorise a hope of the domestic happiness she had then learned to estimate or put Edmund Bertram sufficiently out of her head. What we've had all the way through the book is that even though Mary has this gap in her education, she doesn't understand what it is that Edmund believes in. She responds to it, she recognises it, and that's what makes Edmund attractive to her. And that's why she... His whole principled approach to life. Mm. He lives by things he believes in. And I think when Fanny says he will marry her and they will be miserable... I think think Fanny is wrong. Pretty soon she would have accepted his principles. She would have registered that they had this basis. I think she would not have convinced him to give up the church. He would have educated her. He would have filled in that gap in her education. She would have developed principles and understanding. Yes, even if we mightn't think much of the principles. Yes, yes. But I think to understand Mary Crawford, we have to recognise, even if we don't agree with, the fundamental principles in the book. Yes, we have to recognise that Jane Austen and Edmund shared principles that Mary Crawford didn't. Yeah, so she's not a villain, but if we compare her to the other antagonists or foils, not all of whom are villains, Isabella Thorpe, Lucy Steele, Caroline Bingley, Mrs Elton, Elizabeth Elliot, she is so much more nuanced than any of them. She's not in the same category. But in terms of the structure of the book, she fits that slot yes but she is just so much more of a person yes oh one other thing i wanted to say the podcast the daily nightly they've been reading mansfield park and neither of them had ever read the book before so i found it absolutely fascinating to hear their reactions to it as they read they haven't finished it yet but they have been team fanny and they have really struggled with mary crawford they're kind of saying I like her, but I don't know if I'm supposed to like her. Yes. Which I just thought was a really interesting reaction. Whereas I think you can say Jane Austen says, you're meant to like her, but you must see her as deeply flawed. Yes. Flawed but redeemable. And that's the tragedy. Well, She misses out on redemption. Yes. Whereas Henry Crawford does it all to himself. He's got to own that. Mary Crawford, I think, is just... It's sad. Well, it's sad. You know, perhaps we can say the Mary Crawford subplot is a tragedy. Yeah. For the historical section of this episode, Harriet's persuaded me it's really important that we talk about the place of hereditary titles in the Jane Austen novels, and in particular, 
that we emphasise the difference between the nobility and the gentry. And so far in Jane Austen, we've been only looking at gentry and families that are almost gentry, with a few exceptions like Lady Catherine de Burgh. Darcy's mother and Lady Catherine were the daughters of an earl. And Lady Catherine and Lady Anne Darcy's elder brother who inherited the earldom, yes. he is the father of Colonel Fitzwilliam, but Colonel Fitzwilliam is the younger son. So they are all part of the nobility, but one generation, one son away from Well, I suppose you can say people who belong to a family where the head of the family was one of the 24 dukes, the 34 marquises, the 191 earls, the 115 viscounts, and the 426 barons who were addressed as Lord so-and-so and a Member of Parliament in the House of Lords by birth. If this is the head of their family, they can be said as part of the aristocracy. Whereas, I suppose for Darcy, they have a, a connection through Darcy's mother to the aristocracy, but the family itself is very wealthy gentry. Yes. Broadly, of course, all the Jane Austen families we've met so far have been part of the gentry. Sometimes they barely get into it, like the Phillipses in Pride and Prejudice. When we come to Mansfield Park, we're moving up into the level of the gentry who actually have hereditary titles, though they're not part of the aristocracy and the title is not Lord. Sir Thomas Bertram, a baronet, who's entitled to be addressed as Sir Thomas and his wife as Lady Bertram and his eldest son will inherit the title when he dies. This distinguishes him from a knight, like Sir William Lucas, who appeared in Pride and Prejudice, who has not got a hereditary title. His eldest son will not become Sir Whatever it is, Lucas. But we do have two other Jane Austen characters in the books we've already read who have the title Sir. Sir John Middleton in Sense and Sensibility, and the deceased Sir Louis de Burke in Pride and Prejudice, the husband, of course, of Lady Catherine. We're not explicitly told that they are baronets, but since they both seem to have been very solidly entrenched landed gentry who didn't do anything that might have led to a knighthood, I think we can assume they're both baronets. Baronets were definitely not part of the aristocracy. They were hereditary titles, but they did not sit in the House of Lords. But they are pretty much the top level of the gentry. Baronets rate above knights, don't they? Oh, yes. Yeah. The earliest baronets of Jane Austen's day dated from 1611, when James I wanted to raise money and invented this new title to be granted to 200 gentlemen of good birth with an income of at least a 1,000 a year, and in return for the honour, each was required to pay for the upkeep of 30 soldiers for three years, which mm. amounted to £1,095. They were given the same title as the long-established order of knights, but, again, this title was hereditary. New baronets ever since 1611 have been created by every sovereign. The numbers are always in flux. New ones are created for services, military, political and financial. 
the major thing that we have to remember about both baronets and knights is you always say Sir Thomas Bertram, Sir Walter Elliot, never Sir Bertram, Sir Elliot, never. So always Sir Christian name, surname, or just Sir Christian name, never Sir yes. Surname. And their wives are always Lady Surname. Any woman called Lady Christian name surname must be the daughter of an earl, a marquis or a duke. Which is why we have Sir Thomas and Lady Bertram and in Persuasion it's Lady Elliot but in Pride and Prejudice it is Lady Catherine de Bourgh because she is the daughter of an earl as well as being the wife of a knight or baronet. Now the second thing that can cause confusion here is being members of Parliament because the British Parliament had two houses. There was the House of Lords, which was hereditary, and every man who inherited the title of Duke, Marquess, Earl, Viscount and Baron was automatically a member of the House of Lords, even if he never went near the place. He could turn up any time and vote. On the other hand... Even though we we know right from the beginning that Sir Thomas was a member of Parliament, we have to realise this was not because of his title. What's the evidence in the book that he was a member of Parliament? Because I can think of one thing. When Fanny is writing to William, Edmund says, and your uncle will frank the letter so William will not need to pay for it. And that's because members of Parliament, the person receiving the letter didn't need to pay for it because they franked it, which I think means they signed it as a member of Parliament and it got delivered as government business. It was one of the perks of being a member of Parliament. There were other mentions of it. He used to have to go to London on his own because Lady Bertram wouldn't accompany him. But what we have to realise is that unlike the titles of the nobility, being a baronet did not entitle him to a seat in Parliament. He is a commoner even though he's got a title. And if he is to sit in the House of Commons, the lower house, he must be elected by the voters of a local constituency to represent either the county in which he lives or a borough within it, a borough being a sizeable town with a whole lot of people whose property entitles them to vote. Representing the county was more prestigious. There were only 39 English county constituencies compared with 202 borough constituencies and both of them usually had two members each. There were at this time 380 members of the House of Commons, 243 of them from constituencies in England and the others from Scotland, Wales and very recently Ireland. Hmm. So how did Sir Thomas get his seat? He might have access to what was later called a rotten borough, where only a handful of voters were left in a town that had once been flourishing but had now decayed. Or he might have had to appeal to a much wider electorate, but perhaps one where many of the voters were shopkeepers and tradesmen, dependent on his patronage for their custom. So it wasn't the most uncorrupt system in the universe. (laughs) No. Once he was in Parliament, it then became the object of the various party leaders to attract his support to their cause by including him in a network of giving and taking of favours. Things like giving paid government jobs to his relations or to others whose support was helpful to this network. And this is where the term interest comes in. If you were part of an interest, you were part of one of these networks. The term is used twice in Mansfield Park. 
First, when they're discussing Mrs. Price, Sir Thomas Bertram had interest, which from principle as well as pride, from a general wish of doing right and desire of seeing all that were connected with him in situations of respectability, he would have been glad to exert for the advantage of Lady Bertram's sister, but her husband's profession was such as no interest could reach. So what you get here is nobody considers this as corrupt. If you've got interest, this is what you do. Mm -hmm. Well, when I first read that, I was shocked because it's not usually seen today as appropriate to use political influence to benefit your relations. But when in the 1960s I took some university subjects on the development of the English party system in the 18th century, I realised that had interest is referring to one of these networks which Jane Austen sees as quite honourable, and what goes with loyalty to one of the principal political parties, Whigs or Tories, or perhaps some faction attached to the leading figures within them. In spite of that, it still sounds pretty dodgy to me. Yes, it sounds dodgy, but it was the way it had been worked out to be able to get any bills through. It's when the kings were the Georges who were German-speaking and didn't really understand much English and couldn't put pressure around. So what they had to do was build up a party, and the way they built up a party was to do favours to them. And because they'd had favours, they then felt obligated to vote for this leading person, particularly when it was a vote of confidence. Well, that's what I read in the 1960s. And I've done Google searches and I haven't found anything that tells me that this particular view is totally discarded. And everything I've read in 19th century fiction, particularly, say, in Trollope, but also in George Eliot and Charlotte Young, Mm. supports this picture of the way party support was established. So it's the one Mm -hmm. that makes sense to me when you're explaining why Sir Thomas had interest and from principle he wanted to help his relations. I've also come to believe that that is what is meant in this passage to the other mention of interest when we are told why Sir Thomas, still in Antigua, approves of Mariah's engagement to Mr Rushworth. It was a connection exactly of the right sort in the same county and the same interest, Mm -hmm. which implies that Mr Rushworth is known to support the same party as Sir Thomas. You know, I think Sir Thomas is a Tory. And being in the same county as Sir Thomas, his influence could be invoked by Sir Thomas in elections, which suggests that Sir Thomas is a county member, and also in putting pressure on the votes of other members on particular issues, especially those affecting the county. Is the implication there that Mr Rushworth is part of the community in that interest, or is he actually also a member of Parliament? No, that's where his support goes, right? and that he's in that county. He's part of that group, so he's probably already had some benefits from Mm -hmm. them, though Sir Thomas probably sees him as a future member for a borough or something. (laughs) That's because Sir Thomas hasn't met him yet. Yes, because (laughs) Sir Thomas hasn't met him yet. Before I start talking about how the various pop culture versions have dealt with the chapters we've talked about in this episode, I just wanted to say one thing that I had written down for last time and then completely forgot about. It's an unexpected reference to Mansfield Park in a completely different area of pop culture, which is the Harry Potter series. 
at Hogwarts, the, the school for magic, the caretaker of Hogwarts, who is a horrible person, has a cat. And the cat is called Mrs. Norris. <laughs> and the cat is described as Filch owned a cat called Mrs. Norris, a scrawny, dust-coloured creature with bulging lamp-like eyes, just like Filch's. She patrolled the corridors alone. Break a rule in front of her, put just one toe out of line, and she'd whisk off for Filch, who'd appear wheezing two seconds later. The students all hated him, and it was the dearest ambition of many to give Mrs. Norris a good kick. <laughs> I don't think when J.K. Rowling was writing the first Harry Potter book, because that's out of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, her target audience was around the 11-year-old demographic. Yeah. I don't think she would have had any expectation at that stage that many adults would be reading the book, any expectation that her target audience would recognise the name Mrs. Norris. Yeah. So she presumably just put it in there as something to amuse herself, perhaps. Yeah, the cat was behaving a bit like Mrs. Norris anyway. Yes. So anyhow, to move on to how the three main adaptations have treated these chapters we've been talking about in this episode. First of all, the 1983 BBC production with Sylvester Latuzel and Nicholas Farrell. Because it's quite a long TV series, it's relatively faithful to the book, so it does hit most of the major plot points we've covered in these chapters. So it has all of the conversations with Mary, Henry and the Grants retained, maybe not in their entirety from the book, but mostly using language from the book. It has the conversation about whether Fanny is out or not out, again, mostly using dialogue from the and, book. And what does Mary Crawford look like? I mean, this is one of the things that I feel is she is not exactly witty. She's just full of life and go. This adaptation is not big on life and go. As with all of these 1980s productions, it's a little bit respectful, serious, very committed to the text, but yes. maybe sometimes not quite getting the spring of the text. Yes. I guess one of the things with that, even though it's using the language of the book, sometimes it does fall a little bit flat. Mary and Henry in particular don't necessarily deliver the lines with great verve, so they don't come across perhaps as entirely charming. Yes. Which actually, I don't think any of the productions I've seen have a Henry Crawford who comes across as particularly charming in these early scenes. So he, d he just doesn't come across as the sort of person that all these girls would be falling no, in love with? No, he really doesn't. Although in this production, one person who does come across as charming is Tom, which oh. I think is nice. Nicholas Farrell as Edmund is very serious I guess it's hard to make Edmund come across as particularly engaging because there's not much in the book to draw on for it. Yes. But Tom, he's nice. Yes. He's thoughtless, but there's a scene of him laughing with Fanny and it's just very charming. Now, one thing you don't get, there is the scene where Fanny says to Edmund that she doesn't like how Mary spoke about her uncle. Yeah. But I'm not sure the line about Mary being a little bit disparaging to her uncle actually made the cut. I don't think it was in there. Maybe I missed it. But what instead you got is when Mary's talking about her harp, she says, I'm coming from London, she believes everything can be bought with money. Yeah. And at that point, it cuts to a shot of Fanny looking very serious and a bit disapproving. Yeah. So they do try to have that sense of Mary being a little bit too sprightly and Fanny not always approving. Yeah. And a bit too cynical. Yes. But I don't think they had the line about the uncle, which makes it then odd that Fanny criticises it. By contrast, the 1999 version with 
Francis O'Connor and Johnny Lee Miller. They keep some Jane Austen dialogue, but they also change it. And I think some of the changes are a bit heavy handed. For example, the line about Mr. Rushworth, if he had not 12,000 a year, Edmund does typically keep that line. But in this one, he says he would be prodigiously dim rather than being a very dull fellow. Well, dim doesn't seem like a word from that period. No, it doesn't. In this one, Tom is not at all charming. Tom is basically borderline alcoholic, if not absolutely alcoholic. There is kind of a point to this because it comes out later that his experiences in Antigua have been fairly terrible. He's been very disturbed by the slavery in Antigua. But even before he went to Antigua, he wasn't a particularly charming person. Yes. The Crawfords come across as very smart and knowing and clever. Yes. And... I didn't find them attractive, but maybe that was just me. Yes. And there's no conversation between Edmund and Fanny about Mary in this one. Oh, that's really crucial in the book. Yes, it is. It's because this one had different things it was wanting to say. Yes. And in order to say those different things, it had to cut out some of the things that we think Jane Austen wanted to say. Yes. (laughs) All three of these adaptations do show Edmund teaching Mary to ride. But only the 1983 version has had the scene with Edmund organising the horse for Fanny. In 1999, by contrast, Fanny is coming downstairs, obviously getting ready to go riding, and then sees Edmund with Mary Crawford teaching her to ride on a horse. You kind of have to work out for yourself that maybe it was Fanny's horse, or maybe Fanny was expecting Edmund to go riding with her. You don't really know. So then the 2007 version with Billy Piper and Blake Ritson. Again, nothing about Edmund selling his horse and getting a horse for Fanny. Instead, you just have a scene where Edmund asks Fanny if she's planning to ride the next morning and Fanny says she is and Edmund says he'll get the horse brought round half an hour earlier so Mary can have a lesson because Jenny is our quietest mare. When Fanny comes down and they're still going, she actually looks quite sulky when Mary has spent too long riding. So it's the implication there is she's part of the sort of the whole Mansfield stable yes. rather than, yeah. than Edmund's own. Yes. In this one, they try to make the Crawfords, when they appear, in both cases, the camera starts at their feet and pans up their body to sort of reveal these smart, clever, engaging, intriguing... They're telling you what to think. Yeah, yes. yeah it's very much telling you what to think. The performances themselves are okay, I guess. Nothing special. In terms of the modernisations, there are just two I wanted to talk about. The first is the web series I mentioned from Mansfield with Love. Yes. One thing I didn't say before is that I really wish I'd been able to see this web series when it first came out rather than discovering it after the event. Because I don't know if you remember when I was talking about the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, the Pride and Prejudice web series. Yes. One of the things I found so fascinating about that was I was watching it as it was done so I was seeing the novel unfold in real time over a 12-month period yes and that was really really interesting and from Mansfield with Love did the same thing but of course because I only discovered it when I was preparing for the podcast I just watched all the episodes back to back so I didn't get that year-long development of the story which is a bit sad so one of the things It does a lot and I think comes out of the people working on it having, or at least some of the people working on it having a love for the book, is it kept on working in just little bits from the book. So for example, the discussion about being out or not out, that obviously doesn't work at all for a modern setting. So instead of it being about Frankie, as she's called in this 
rather than Fanny. Instead, it is a conversation between Mary Crawford and Frankie, and it's about Tom, and it's about does his family know that Tom is gay? There's one scene that takes place at a party and in the background you hear someone saying get Frankie a glass of wine and then Edmund saying I'll put some lemonade in it which of course picks up with Edmund mixing the wine and water for her. Yes. And there's another scene where Tom talks about maybe I should have gone into the Navy and Mary Crawford makes a comment about him having seen rears and vices enough without being in the Navy. Oh right. So they, they keep bringing in all these little bits which are really fun if you know the book. Yes. Now, this is another one where Tom really comes across as engaging. Henry Crawford doesn't. I don't know if it's the script or if it's the actor, but in these early scenes with Henry Crawford, I spent most of it just finding him totally uncharming. Mr. Rushworth in this, he's called Rory Rushworth rather than Mr. He does come across as a nice person, just doesn't have two brain cells to rub together. The concept of going to Antigua, Mansfield Park is a hotel that the family owns and the Antigua is another hotel that's not been doing well, so Mr Bertram and Tom go to the Antigua. So he's not called Sir Thomas, he's called Mr... He's he's called Mr, yeah. And the Crawfords are brought into Mansfield to help do up the property. So it actually builds on some of the stuff from the book of Henry having an eye for improvements. Yeah, so the last thing I wanted to talk about was Mary. She does come across as quite charming and quite nice. But she is so condescending towards Fanny. But I think she, the actress also carries across she's condescending without even realising she's being condescending. Yes. So just as an example, several times she talks about the little videos Frankie is making for her brother Will. And then at one point she says, Frankie, you're so adorable. She's nice. She's, I think she genuinely likes Frankie and everything, but in a very condescending, I'm from smart London and you're just from the country and you don't have a university degree sort of thing, with, without even really being aware of it. Even though the character of Frankie is very different from Fanny Price, I think the actress does such a good job and you do empathise with her as you see her being sidelined and as you see her feeling second rate compared to everyone else. What in effect it's done is changing the character but preserving all the Cinderella story of the plot. Yeah, I think it gives an emotional arc for Frankie that maps to Fanny's emotional arc But Frankie is not as underneath judgmental as Fanny. Yes. So they make Frankie a more genuinely deep down nice person than Fanny is. Yes. And so it's a lot easier to empathise with Frankie than it is to empathise with Fanny. Yes. Now the other one I particularly wanted to talk about was you mentioned last time there was a D.E. Stevenson book that some people say is based on Mansfield Park. I say it's based on Mansfield Park. Other people say no it's not. Well (laughs) the book is called Celia's House and I got it and I read it and honestly anyone who says it's not based on Mansfield Park I don't think they've read Mansfield Park very closely. You'd never read any D.E. Stevenson before had you? No I hadn't. Well she's one of those authors that have maintained a popularity in spite of the critics and everyone else saying they're low grade yeah they're not high-end literature well sorry this one wasn't high-end literature but I enjoyed the story I really did and yes some sections of it are totally Mansfield Park but it's not just a reproduction of Mansfield Park it is a family saga of itself but some of the relationships in it are totally the Mansfield Park relationships and there are even some moments that are totally Mansfield Park moments But one thing that I found was really different from my reading of Mansfield Park 
Yeah, we were talking about how people have different opinions of Mary Crawford and some people find her a nice person and some people find her a horrible person. Yes. And John Mullen in particular feels that she's scheming. Well, the Mary Crawford that D.E. Stevenson creates, she is absolutely John Mullen's Mary Crawford because she is a piece of work. She is selfish. She is scheming. She lies to people. She is not a nice person. Yes. It doesn't point for point match to Mansfield Park, but some sections of it and some character relationships absolutely come from Mansfield Park. But even those characters, they have other parts of their story that are not from Mansfield Park. So it's not a retelling as such, but some sections of it are. Yes. So yes, and that's basically what I have to say about the pop culture versions this week. You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet. And me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters 8 to 11 of Mansfield Park. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneausten.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.